Welcome to our classroom. In this space, we talk about education, which is inclusive of, but not limited to what happens in schools. I'm your host, Roberto Germán. And this episode, I will be joined by Dr. Richard J. Reddick, University of Texas in Austin. He's the inaugural associate dean for equity, community engagement, and outreach, and distinguished service professor in educational leadership and policy in the College of Education at UT Austin. He is also faculty co-chair of the Institute for Educational Management and Bravely Confronting Racism in Higher Education at Harvard University Graduate School of Education. Dr. Reddick conducts ethnographic research on the experiences of faculty of color in predominantly white university settings, mentoring relationships in higher education, black families in American society, and work family balance in junior faculty fathers. A former elementary and middle school teacher, he remains active in scholarship and community work as a member of two charter school boards in Austin, Texas. Dr. Reddick is the co-host of the KUT Public Radio Podcast and radio segment, Black Austin Matters with Dr. Lisa B. Thompson. And regularly contributes opinion pieces for the Chronicle of Higher Education, CNN, NBC Think, Fortune, and major, major networks across Texas and the nation. He is a graduate of Department of Defense, Dependent Schools, and Public Schools in East Austin, and earned his bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees from the University of Texas at Austin and Harvard University. Dr. Reddick is a husband, son, brother, and father of two. Excited. Richard J. Reddick with us this evening. Just individual full of knowledge. And we're gonna we're gonna absorb that knowledge this evening, Dr. Reddick. We're gonna squeeze it out of you. What's up, Rob? How you doing, bro? Hey man, I'm well. I'm well. So man, good, it's to, good see to see you, brother. It's been yes, a minute. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. How's the family? It's been a minute. Indeed, man, we're doing great. In fact, they're eating. They're eating dinner, and at some point, I don't know, maybe Catherine or Carl might come out here. But Carl is taller than me. Wow, I, I don't want to say he's taller than me. He's the same height as me. Let's put it okay. that way. <laughs> okay, I'm not ready for that smoke, man. I'm not ready for it. Listen, man, it, it's been a long time since I've seen Carl, man. So I'm like, they turn around, and these kids are all grown up and the beanpole, amazing, man. Amazing, up. He got amazing a, he's got a ball game tomorrow, so you know, hopefully. Uh, the Panthers can pull out a win. We'll see. But, uh, okay. man, it's great. I mean, I hope Florida's working out well for you, man. But we miss you here in Texas, man. So, you know, come through. Oh, uh, you know, I got love for Texas. I got love. <laughs> you know, Florida and Texas are sister states. <laughs> yes. Uh, there's a lot, there's, you know, there's a lot of good and there's a lot of crazy. I was going to say, that's that's actually a pretty accurate uh, description. Having lived in both states, I would agree with that. <laughs> yeah. So, no, we're, you know, we're we're settling in pretty well over here. Uh, building the network and getting out and about trying to yeah just trying to become more familiar with the territory that we're in now and understanding how it is that that we can make an impact here but also uh receiving receiving a lot from from the great people here in the tampa area well let me just say you and nina are going to just do great things you you always bring uh the energy the interaction uh the critical analysis uh, you bring it. So uh, watch out, Florida. So, I mean, it's just, it's all good, man. I'm, I'm excited you're there. Um, your gifts are too big for one state. So I know you're going to be world, you know, worldwide, basically. Uh, and shout out to Massachusetts Bay State. I know you're going to give some love to them, too. Uh, always. So. Lawrence, Massachusetts, <laughs> always represent. Straight up. <laughs> well, it's great to have you here this evening. And 
Um, I'm excited to to dig into what we're going to be talking about tonight. And your new book is coming out, not not anytime soon, but you know the spring <laughs> spring of 2023 will creep up before you know it. So you know I'm, it, bro. I'm, I'm excited and I'm grateful to have the opportunity to start uh, engaging in this conversation with you, processing. Yeah what this yeah. book is going to be about mm -hmm. and i you know i'm i'm glad that we got the the platform here to yeah. dig in because i respect your scholarship i respect you as a appreciate person that. appreciate uh, that i appreciate the friendship and so thank you for the opportunity to to unpack what it is that you're working on i'm sure it's going to be special and you know you got a supporter over here and me yeah, you know, brother, I mean, you know, first of all, you know, I'm just trying to be like you, you know, on the higher ed side, you know, so, you know, the fact that you've always been active in, in practice and in, in, in the work. So I, I think that's what I want to do as well. You know, as you know, you know, my original foray in education was teaching fourth grade, you know, people often right. say, oh, well, you're a professor and you do, you know, period journals. And I'm, yeah, I do that stuff. But I mean, um, I've always felt as a first generation collegian that you know, I need to keep my work in spaces where people who do not have, you know, three letter degrees after their names uh, are, are able to access it. And that's one of the frustrations about being a scholar is that, um, you know, our modalities and things that we put our work into often in places where people can't access them. Mm -hmm. And the great thing about being a scholar in the 21st, 20, 21st century is that we have all these modalities. We have podcasts, we have, you know, um, media outlets. We have all different ways of putting our work out there. And so what really happened was for the last several years, you know this, I've been writing a lot of public scholarship, uh, opining on a lot of issues about equity and inclusion, and incorporating my issue, my research on mentoring and the experiences of faculty of color. And um, I guess it was uh, maybe about two or three years ago, probably about two years ago, um, one of the editors of the Harvard Education uh, press. I've done some work with them. And, and uh, her name is Jane. Shout out to Jane. And Jane was like, well, when are you going to write your book? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I could do that, right? Uh, and, and, you know, for those of you who are in the academic space, you know how it works because, you know, I am in a article field. And so my wheelhouse is primarily 30-page articles. That's what I do primarily. And then maybe you get to the point when you're an associate professor or a full professor, you feel in the vibe, you write the book. And so a lot of ways, this book has been written over years. Like, I got to write that down. I got to write that down. And what I found myself, I was often in spaces with other, you know, universities, with folks in the K-12 sector, folks in the community, and talking about certain issues, talking about mentoring. Like, how does mentoring work? How do we mentor effectively across identities and think mm -hmm. intersectionality about, intersectionally about mentoring? Um, and then secondly, you know, now that we're all doing this DEI work, you and I have done that work together with right. Katie and, 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 and Lamia, you know, and, and one of the things always came to the, the forefront is like, how do we start engaging in the diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging conversation if I'm new to the game? And so mm -hmm. this book is really aimed at people who are coming into that space. There's tons of great stuff from Kendi's work to Sarah Ahmed. There's, there's so many great pieces out there people can follow, but if you're just coming to this for the first time, I hope that my book will be a book you can pick up and sort of understand how do I start understanding and thinking conceptually about diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging, and not necessarily my job, right? Because if you're a diversity, equity, and inclusion person, if that's what your role is, um, you know, I'm talking to you, but I'm also talking to people who work in the financial um, side of things or in the information technology side of things, or in the faculty staff side of things, mm -hmm. and don't really have this as their main kind of dig. So I'm trying to help them understand this is the way you can think about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and also how mentoring interfaces with that. Because I think you know, any equity plan has to think about how we develop and support emerging scholars, whether they're mm -hmm. K-12, whether they're in higher ed. That's where it starts. So okay. if, if, we're, if we're not um, talking about mentoring and supporting uh, emerging scholars in that process, then we're not doing the work properly. So think about it as like a mashup of uh, mentoring, diversity, equity, and inclusion work, but also protecting people of color who do the work. Because as you and I know, um, that work often falls on the shoulders of people of color, especially women of color. 
And we want to make sure that those people are not burned out or exhausted by the work. And that diversity, equity, inclusion, and mentoring is work that everybody needs to be doing in the organization. So how do we do that in a way that people who hold their identities do not feel taxed, culturally taxed or burdened, um, but also feel that they can do this in a in concert with other people who are doing the same kinds of things. So um, it's been a joy to be writing, man. I'll, I'll be telling you, it's, it's, you know, sometimes the administrative part of the, our, our work takes us away. And so we do less of that. But I've been having these like days where I just write all day. And it's like, man, it's like dissertating again. It's like I haven't been in that, you know, deep writing mode in quite some time. As a faculty member, I'm constantly, you know, write this, right. jump to this. And I'm like, I'm just writing right now, which is really great. So it's, it's been a blast, man. So looking forward to it. Um, Harvard Ed Press will be publishing it. So looking forward to that coming out. But definitely give me a little time to get it done. But I'm making good progress. No, we're playing the seeds now so everybody can know and they could be behind it and that there'll be a buildup. And so if you don't Most know, step. Dr. Richard J. Reddick will be publishing the book Restorative Resistance in Higher Education, Leading in an Era of Racial Awakening and Reckoning. Man, that I mean, the title, the title just slaps. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, slaps. I'm, it's hard I'm about, I'm, I love I'm about it. I love the long it. titles, you know, that's the academic part of me. Long, so be long. That's right. Long titles. <laughs> Now let let's let's unpack this, and I, I think you you started to do that, but I don't want to assume that everybody knows what some of these terms mean. So, what is restorative resistance? It's a great question. I mean, so first of all, us being present with people of color, marginalized identities, LGBTQ people with disabilities, low income, first generation, you name those different identities we might hold we are resisting by our presence, right? So I think a lot of times people think resisting means, oh, you're up there in the front lines with a picket sign. That's part of resistance. But resistance also means that you are actually engaged in institutional spaces, in leadership opportunities and spaces. And, and I think a lot of times we don't credit ourselves with actually thinking about us showing up in these spaces is in fact resistance, right? Mm -hmm. Now, restorative is the part I'm really interested in because the resistance is one thing we always do, but if we resist and what ends up happening is we end up being subtracted from and we end up being, you know, sort of diminished by the work. And this is not to say that the work is easy. The work is difficult. It's challenging. We do this work, but we should be doing it in a space that we feel that's regenerative, that feels sustainable, that feels like it's a community, a community that we're working with. And so that's really the, the restorative part of it, too, because often people talk about, oh, the resistance, the resistance. Well, the problem with resistance on its own is that we often get worn down by it. And there's nothing more disheartening. You've seen this before when people are in a space and they've been doing the work, but because it's been taking so much from them and they're not getting any sustainability or restoring practices coming out of it, that these become like burned out, right? right. Um, diversity, equity, inclusion space, just in the last couple of years, we started seeing more and more literature and reports talking about people who are doing these jobs and then walking away. Like, I just mm -hmm. can't do this. This is taking time away from my family. It's taking time away from my, my own sort of well-being. In fact, I was writing today a piece about my experiences, especially with women of color in the academy, talking about how their health and literally losing people uh, because these environments can be so uh, deleterious to us. So the question is, how do we do this work in an efficacious and in, in, in a meaningful way that sustains us? Mm -hmm. um, it's a lot to do with who supports us and who mentors us and who's around us, but also knowing that the work is being done by many of us, not just one of us. So that's a big piece of it. That's great. So, and to, to your point about people walking away, I mean, I served uh, years ago as director of multicultural affairs and community development uh, at a school and i would i would stop collecting the business cards of other dei practitioners so i'm like eh, you know folks ain't hanging around you know right in, in two years they're gone so i'm like stop giving me your business card <laughs> seriously it was really yeah. like that you know yeah if, if you did if you were in it for five years or a little longer you, you were all head. in a sense. Yeah, and that, that's exactly the point. I mean, the point is that any, many years ago I did a study with some of my uh, colleagues at UT about 
diversity education and, and how people who do the work sustain themselves. Because the first thing we ask people is like, how do you sort of decompress? Because unlike teaching physics or you know, teaching financial literacy, we're talking about things that actually impact our lives. If you're explaining to somebody how microaggressions work and they're actually committing microaggressions against you mm. in the process, you know, that's why we often work in teams because, you know, it's very difficult to be the one person up there. And there's often a lot of resistance too about, you know, the diversity, equity, and inclusion work. It's like, well, you know, I'm not here for the diversity session. I don't want to be spoken to in that way. I don't want to be lectured. And, and, and so that's really where this whole idea came from is like, well, those of us who do the work are always cognizant of the fact that we have to be always thinking about how do we make sure we take care of ourselves? Yeah, I use that old analogy, you know, in the, in the airplane, you know, put your mask on before helping others, right? So a lot of people are doing this work, but their mask is off and they're, mm. they're choking, right? So put the mask on, make sure you're able to do this work in a way that informs and supports and uplifts you. Not saying it's easy work, but also saying that that's a part of the uh, process that you have to find ways. And sometimes that's the responsibility of the institution. You know, I'm not saying you need to go do certain things yourself. I'm saying the institution needs to be accountable to make sure you can do the work effectively. And I always tell people who are interested in these roles, what kind of institutional supports do you have? Because, you know, you can't be going home with the headaches and the heartaches all the time. You right. have to be able to distribute that somewhat. Yeah, it has to be sustainable. Right. How, how does restorative resistance differ from the higher ed versus K through 12? It's interesting. I mean, I, I thought about that. And, and I, you know, one of the things that we were talking about when we were pitching the book was like, this book obviously is aimed at a higher ed audience, but hopefully would be applicable to nonprofits and K-12 and either national, other national context, because the work is often very similar. Institutions, and many of us who work in schools, who work in universities, work in community colleges, work in nonprofits, you know, we are attached to a mission of institution. We are happy to be in, in, in colleagueship with people who are doing the work. But a lot of times institutions carry a lot of baggage with them. And one of the things that's, that's important is to think about, you know, if you're an institutional member, you can't just cut off the institution and say, the institution sucks, it's whack, you know, I'm me. You're part of the institution, right? Um, and, and part of that is an institution sort of molding to your sort of way of thinking. Like I often tell people, yes, I, every institution has its own mores and its own sort of uh, culture, but you should have to abandon who you are to be part of the organization. If that's the case, then it's not something you want to be a part of. And a lot of times we are working to make institutions accepting and protective of us at the same time as we're working with them, right? Um, some folks get the privilege of being instantly embraced and instantly sort of supported. Some of them have to work at it. And that's the challenge, I think. Um, and I think especially given the bureaucratic nature of higher education and K-12, and also the sustained attacks on what's happening in educational spaces. If people, you know, everybody should know this, but if you don't know this, there isn't a concerted effort to, um, you know, use our schools as like sort of a proving ground for ideological um, sort of messages. And, you know, most people are just trying to get their job done, right? Um, and then also bringing a perspective about social justice and equity, which for whatever reason, some people in some political spheres feel is problematic. And instead of having honest dialogues about that, um, there's a lot of performativity about what that looks like. So, mm. you know, I'm going to bum rush this meeting and I'm going to, accuse educators of doing things they're not doing. And, and what I want us to get to is a point where we really start respecting educators. Uh, and that's a question, respecting them as they have earned the respect. If you're working in a K-12 institution, the nonprofit and higher institution, yes, accountability matters. Yes, you need to be on top of your game. But where is the professional respect afforded to people who work in these spaces? We've all gone to school, we've been educated, we've been professionally developed. Um, let's make sure that respect is returning. And that's one thing I want to see happen. Obviously, it's a big concern for me when I turn on TV and I see people coming into meetings and, you know, creating havoc and making the teachers to be the enemy, when in fact, the teachers are the ones who are doing, you know, all the work in all the ways.
Right, and the job's hard enough. The last thing we need to do is drive more teachers away from the profession. You know, it's already a struggle. You have uh, places in our country, states in our country that are turning to bus drivers and uh, turning to to other uh, folks who play other roles within the schools to, to step in and sub classes, which is like mind blowing, right? Right, you right. Know, folks yeah. Folks in these other roles gotta be like, man, I didn't sign up for all this. Like you said, you know, Robbie, you know, teaching is a challenge on the best days with the best environments, the best resources. It's still a challenge, right? And if you add in, you know, a lack of resources, you know, the politicization of, of what's happening in a lot of our, our, our schools um, and not giving people the freedom to do the jobs what they're employed to do. And that doesn't mean, of course, that as a community member, you cannot have a perspective or you cannot, you know, opine about what you think is happening there. But there definitely is a, a fraying of that sort of contract where, you know, we give, you know, a lot of respect and uh, importance to the work of educators and work in partnerships with communities rather than working against or seeing them as the, the enemy. And I actually hear people using that kind of language, which I find very disturbing. Extremely. Now, now who are some folks that are leading bravely in this era? And what, well, are, you know, what are some notable characteristics of their leadership? So let me tell you about what I've been doing for the last two, uh, I guess, guess year or so um, with my colleague, uh, Robin Chapman, who's the uh, chief diversity officer at the Harvard Kennedy School. Um, we lead a uh, seminar called Bravely Confronting Racism. And we've been doing that with higher ed leaders from across the country and the world. Uh, we've done two sessions of that. Uh, and I got to tell you, um, we talk to folks and they come from such interesting spaces, right? So, you know, sometimes they are people who are in diversity, equity and inclusion roles at a university or community college, right? In the United States or in Canada or even in Ireland, right? Um, and then sometimes they are deans or they're, they're department chairs, you know, they're provosts. So they, they have all kinds of roles in the institutions of higher education they work in. Um, and we, we come to this issue about bravely confronting racism because we're in an environment where a lot of the conversations have been muted. Well, we don't want to talk about racism or anti-blackness. We want to talk about, you know, belonging. And we use sort of very race neutral terms to talk about something that's race conscious. And in 2020, if you can't use the words white supremacy, uh, anti-blackness, um, then what are we talking about, right? So I, I will tell you, when I go in those sessions with Robin and my cogs I'm working with, people like Frank Tu at the University of Denver, uh, sorry, University of Connecticut, uh, Mata Asapati, who's at the uh, University of Pennsylvania, I, I'm motivated and uplifted by the work that they're doing, right? People in practice and research doing amazing work. Uh, Jeff Milam, who's the dean of the College of Education over at UC Santa Barbara, uh, Duchess Harris, who's over at uh, McAllister College, who's been writing an incredible series of books about Black heroes, right? Mm -hmm. um, and this sister is bad. She's an English professor and then got a law degree and is bringing that into her work and made the list. And this is something she's very proud of. Uh, there was a legislator here in the state of Texas who created a list of books that he wanted to know. It wasn't a book ban list, but it was kind of trending towards that. And her books made the list you know, writing about uh, Katherine Johnson and people like that. So, you know, I think about these folks who are doing this work and the privilege that Robin and I have to bring them into our space to just talk to the people we're, we're working with about the work. And nobody gives these sort of false stories about, oh, well, you just go up there and you say five things and it works out great. It's a struggle, right? We talk about the struggles. We talk about the restorative nature of doing this, you know, um, you know, my friend Ishel Rosal at Columbia University is another person we bring to our group who is doing great work at Columbia with students. And we just talk about how this work has to be sustainable. It cannot be something um, that is so subtractive of your being that you can't do the work. Because then when we, where are we left? Right. We've broken you and then we're not getting where we need to go with our work. Um, you know, so I just think about those folks. Um, I'm lucky to work at the University of Texas with my dean, Charles Martinez, who's a prevention scientist. And I've learned so much from him just because, you know, he's constantly, you know, sort of 
challenging me sometimes to go into spaces that aren't always the spaces that I think I'm going to have the most positive reception. To understand that the diversity, equity, and inclusion work cannot be simply done to the folks who are responding to it initially really positively. It reminds me of something that one of my heroes, Beverly Daniel Tatum, said at a seminar I was mm -hmm. at with her one time. And Dr. Tatum, as you all know, while the black kids sit together in the cafeteria, you know, a legend in, in, in the space. Um, somebody said to her, well, Dr. Tatum, you know, this lecture is great. I've learned so much, but we're all, you know, you're preaching to the choir, you know, we're all in the game, you know? And she's like, sometimes the choir needs practice. Mm. And I was like, ooh, you know, exactly. Sometimes yeah. those of us doing the work need to be reminded there's a community of folks doing the work with us and that we can improve our practice or, or we can learn new things or we can be challenged in what we think by those folks. And so, you know, Dr. Tatum's actually one of the people I'm kind of thinking about as I write my book, because when I read Why the Black Kids Sit Together in the Cafeteria when I was in college, I was just like, I want to do what she does. You know, I want to be in that role, whatever, is it a professor? Is it being a psychologist? What is it? What is it? I want to do that. And I've had the opportunity to interview her and work with her uh, several times. We just did a, um, we did a seminar a couple of years ago together uh, for uh, Makubo, which is a uh, business officers and higher education group. And, you know, I'm just sitting there vibing. I'm like, I can't believe I'm on the same, you know, stage as you. Uh, but everything she said, like, yeah, what she said, you know. So, I mean, I think about those kinds of folks, um, the anti-racist educators, uh, people like uh, my boy, Peniel Joseph, who I'm partnering at UT Austin just doing the work on a daily basis. So there's just so many people, and, and I know I'm gonna say, oh my gosh, I didn't mention this person, but I've been purposely, I think, uh, ecumenical in saying that I'm lucky to work with people who are constantly in the stage of learning, of educating themselves, as pushing the boundaries. And, um, you know, that all comes from me being mentored by people like Charles Willie, uh, who was my mentor in graduate school, who taught me so much about equity issues, who authored so many desegregation plans across the country, Boston, Atlanta, mm -hmm. different places like that back in the 70s when it was like not easy to do those kinds of things. And so I like to think I'm doing some of the work that he's, I'm following right. up on some Building of off of that legacy. Yeah, trying to. Mm -hmm. No, nah, you're doing it. You're still, stop it, stop it. Trying. <laughs> Being humble. Speaking of leading in an era of racial awakening and reckoning, this past year, you chaired the Eyes of Texas History Committee at the University of Texas Austin. You know I was going to go there. Yeah, I knew you were. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was it like for you to lead this committee? And were you able to apply this notion of restorative resistance? Because, you know, I, I was watching from, and I hit you up a couple of times. I texted you a couple of times. I'm like, hey, man, <laughs> what is going on with this madness? Right, right. That's a, it's a great question, Rob. And, you know, I, I always say to people, like, I'm going to probably need to have some counseling about that experience. But I'll say it was an incredible experience for a couple of reasons. The first reason it was, it was incredible is because I was working with a group of 24 people who were just amazing. I mean, from different walks of life, different generations, different experiences. People were student athletes, people who were band members, people who worked at the university, people who were scholars. And we came into the group not really knowing where people stood on this whole issue. And the one thing I think was really important, and people have actually often asked me this question sometimes, like, well, Rich, you know, were you responsible for deciding if the song stayed or not? I'm like, no, we were not. We, the president of the university had made the decision the song was going to stay, but he wanted us to research the history of the song. And I will tell you, every person who joined the committee, the first sort of conversation we had was always the same, which is like, yo, thanks for, you know, inviting me, this is an honor. Are we deciding the fate of the song? Because I don't want that smoke, right? Right. <laughs> Positive or negative. I don't want anyone who killed it or kept it, right? And so that being out of our hands allows us to do actually the work. And we actually had four responsibilities, and three of those were historical, to unearth the history, to talk about how alumni and students and the band and the athletics had used it and how it had been used in popular culture. But the fourth thing we were asked to do was to make recommendations about how the university can grow from this. And that is really the restorative resistance piece that came in. Because, mm -hmm. for instance, uh, one of the things that's really significant about the research on the eyes of Texas was the lack of involvement of African-Americans at the university. Black students were not enrolled at the University of Texas since 1950. 
1903, there were no black people at the university except people who worked there, you know, as servants. That's the only people who were working at the university. So that was an issue of a mission, right? So how do you factor that in? And so one thing we talked about is like, perhaps there should be a preamble to the song that's composed by an African-American composer that's always played with the song to sort of remind people of that piece of the history, right? Because it's all well good to say, oh, you know, we're singing about, a, you know, the football team, that's great. But we're also remembering and sort of um, presenting a historical narrative that's important. We also talked about the importance of being very reflective in our own uh, institutional history. And while the university was sort of, you know, going through some kinds of things about its history, the city of Austin, the state of Texas, the United States of America is a general thing. It's all part of the history as well. Like to say, well, the problem is institution right here is the place that's messed up. What about the city we were, we were actually connected to? Mm. What about the state that we are a part of? What about the nation, right? So to make that much more of a broader conversation, I think the last thing I, I, I think was really uh, meaningful to me and something I didn't really know much about and wasn't really prepared for, to be honest with you, was just sort of the media interest, right? And heavy. I, I feel two ways Everybody about that, right? Everybody was covering it. Right. And, and, and what I realized is that, you know, the agenda that media outlets have are not often the same agenda we have, right? We're institutes of education. So can we summarize what happened in a two-minute soundbite? No, we can't. But we had to respond to that kind of um, that kind of demand. And what I've told the media repeatedly is like, you know, this is a long-term story. If you're interested in the story, you need to be monitoring what happens. And I'll, I'll shout out at least one or two media outlets that have come back and said, we want to know what's happened since then. And I'm really proud that my colleague, Latoya Smith, who's a vice president for diversity and community engagement, is leading committee that I'm a part of, where we're actually looking at what we are doing and a lot of things we want to do are not things, Rob, that can happen overnight. Like, you know, we can't flip a switch and make things go in another direction. But we are working and sort of building capital and, and, and building a capacity to enact a lot of these initiatives. Because one thing is like, okay, who's responsible for this particular initiative? Who's going to be the point person for this? How are we going to get buy-in and support for these ideas? And, and so the great thing about, I guess, the experience I would say is that I had to talk to a lot of people with a lot of different perspectives. And a lot of it was just listening to what people had to say, right? People, I, I gotta tell you why I think this is not the way to go or why you should go this way. And um, obviously during a pandemic, it's not easy to do that. And I you know, kind of wish some ways that we weren't in a pandemic so we could have actually done this. But also I was kind of, uh, you know, in, in a borderlands perspective, trying to explain to people Here's what people in another perspective are thinking about what's going on. Because a lot of times people were talking to each other. People found sort of echo chambers. Well, people from my generation, people from my sort of political mindset feel this way about it. And, you know, one thing that the committee members often were exposed to was a lot of people with a lot of different perspectives. And, you know, people want to be heard. You know, I think one thing that people often think is like, well, you know, can you give us like a two minute sort of synopsis of what we should do and what should we do next? And I'm like, can't we really do that? <laughs> you know, right. um, because we all have different, another part of it, Rob, is like your own personal history impacts a lot of how these things are processed in your own mind. And I can't tell you to feel a certain way about something if your own life history has gone a certain direction where that's not gonna work for you. And I've also told people, it's also acceptable for people to have varying opinions. Like you don't have to have a rock solid, consistent perspective. Some context, maybe the song works for you. Some it may not. And that's okay. I mean, that's really, what I was looking for Rob constantly was like, what are the models of how to reckon with our past and our history? Guess what? There are that many. This is unresolved, you know, my, my colleague, Neil Joseph talks about the third reconstruction, which is still going on, right? We have a lot of unresolved historical, social political enmities about our university and our nation and our state. Those, that's all happening. And perhaps because we haven't resolved that, that's why we don't have easy answers. And, and maybe our challenge is to actually work through the challenges and 
you know, finances. But that might take time. And it'll probably take a lot of us talking to each other and hearing a lot of things that we don't necessarily want to hear initially, but will help us understand where people are coming from. So um, I'm glad it's behind me in a lot of ways, uh, <laughs> but really grateful for uh, the committee of 24 we worked with because, um, you know, this is a group of folks who committed to doing the work um, and did it honestly. Um, one of our committee members, Andrew Vo, called in from the next day. He was in Singapore, so he was always a day ahead of us. We'd call in and be there early in the morning in his time to be part of our conversations. And so all of us did it voluntarily. Nobody got paid. I, I see that sometimes. Well, this group was, you know, this professor was like, no, none of us got paid. We all did it because we care about the institution. We care about the community. And, um, you know, I, I expect that we'll have more conversations um, going forward. And they need to be conversations and not polemics, you know, not, you know, people on soapboxes, but people actually engaging in dialogue and drawing from the information that we put together. Yeah, and that's key. You know, a lot of people don't want to come to the table and have these courageous conversations, uh, regardless of which end of the spectrum you're on, right? You might be on a soapbox, but if you're not willing to listen to others, it's tough for us to, to progress. So salute to you and the committee for your work on developing that report, uh, which I did read and, and I've read a lot of the media write-ups and but it's good to hear it from the source directly. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think that's, you just made a great point. It, it, it stirs up a lot of passions with people, right? And passion's good. There's never a problem with passion. But when the passion sort of supersedes the ability to hear other people, to other to, 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 to just keep in mind other pieces. One thing I thought was really powerful for me as somebody who did some of the research in this area was how the song was used as a resistance uh, anthem. Uh, and um, I, I was kind of surprised that people didn't really sort of pick up on that. There was one story I'll tell about um, this is that in 1966, I think it was, there was a, um, a migrant worker march in South Texas. Uh, and these folks marched from Westlaco to Austin, you know, wow. uh, 500 miles, you know, and they were working with a group of ministers and priests. It was a, multi-denominational sort of group. And um, the reporter asked them, well, you're marching all this time. How are you keeping your spirits up? Like, we're singing in the eyes of Texas. And I was just like, say what? <laughs> like, like, walk me through that again. And, you know, I don't know, we didn't know, we didn't have the ability to find out why that song was, was, was chosen. But it did seem to me to, to, to think that people find meaning in songs, which is really interesting. Um, one of our committee members, uh, Bill Brad's historian said, you know, statues and buildings are static. They don't change. They're always who they are. Robert E. Lee is always Robert E. Lee. He never grows. That's why he gotta go. <laughs> right, exactly. Now a song, and I didn't get this until I started thinking about this. A song is constantly in the mode of interpretation. So for those of you a certain age on the call, Jimi Hendrix, busts out his Stratocaster and plays the Star Spangled Banner. It's the song that we've all known, but it was played differently and it meant something different come from him. Whitney sings a song in 2000. Same thing, like that song, that hits different, hearing her sing it. And one of the things that was really interesting is sort of seeing on our webpage, eyesoftexas.utexas.edu, there's actually a bunch of videos of different interpretations of the song from the mariachi version to Gucci really? Mane's version. Um, yes, Gucci Mane has a version. There's even a soft jazz version as Texas, which I will just go out there and say it's not very good. Um, but people interpreted this in different ways. And that should say something about how people found meaning in it. Doesn't mean that the song is, you know, resolved of all of its complications, but it does mean that that idea that a gospel version of this song, a song sung by one of our first black graduates at commencement in 2000, could mean something differently. And I think, um, what, not to get, I don't get way too into this, but I'll make one last comment about this. So one of the things was like, well, why did you choose the Levy song? You know, a song that's got these connotations. And you're talking to people who do work in this area, are like, look, in 1903, if you wanted a song to catch on, you want it to go viral, you better pick a song that people know, mm. you know, 
because just like this, the Star Spangled Banner is based on a drinking song, a melody. People have to know the, the tune to pick it up, right? And in fact, um, there was an initial version of the song written that was not the Act of Texas. It was another song called Jolly Students of the, Universe, uh, the Varsity. And it didn't slap because people were like, we don't know how to follow the song. The lyrics and the melody, we don't know it. But the Levy song, everybody knew it, right? And we can certainly delve into what that's all about. But I think some of the ideas about why that song, that tune was chosen, we actually were able to find that out that it had a connection because it was a familiar tune that people could pick up very easily. And it's funny in our 21st century perspectives to think about how do you create something that's viral? It was different in 1903, mm -hmm. right? And more importantly, you didn't have us helping you with it, right? So we, we couldn't add our flavor to it too much later. So I, I think that was one of the interesting things about this. So you end up having conversations with musicologists and art historians about these kinds of things, which was really interesting. So um, one of my colleagues was saying, you know, this is a great experience, but I just wish everybody could have the same experience. And so I think the report is part, a partial immersion into that experience. But then you sit down with 10 people who you know or don't know and start talking about it and talk about it honestly and hear each other and know that some people are going to have responses that are going to be like, mm, not feeling it. But I understand why you have the perspective you have, and vice versa. It's it's fascinating to to hear these pieces of history and the different stories connected to this song. I still feel the way I still I feel, <laughs> especially attending University of Texas football games and and other sporting events, and being one of very few uh, right. individuals of color there. It was always a very strange experience for me. Well, the context matters, right? The context, the context always matters. matters. Always matters. I always make this point to people. It's like double consciousness. I said, you know, as, as a Black person, that song in certain contexts feels uncomfortable, feels odd, feels strange. In other contexts, it feels like that's fine, right? And that's the whole thing. I mean, I, I think that's the part that a lot of people didn't understand. And a, lot of, a big part of the issue was, people couldn't understand that perspective. Like nobody is saying that you, by singing the song, are espousing these beliefs, but you have to understand what it's like to be a person who is not in the majority hearing that in that environment and what it invokes for most of us, right? Um, and, and I just ask people to sort of sit with that and people are like, well, no, it's I'm like, you just have to understand that double consciousness, Du Bois came up with that in 1903, the same year as Isaac Texas. Um, and, you know, it just sort of, that's what we often have our experiences as BIPOC folks, as queer folks, as underrepresented you know, low-income folks. We're often in spaces where we have to negotiate our identity, uh, you know, and sort of, well, am I, am I part of the group? Am I out of the group? Am I able to be part of this? That's, that's a reality. And it doesn't make you any less of a person, but it, it's an important, I think, distance we sort of have with a lot of our white colleagues and our white friends. They might understand that context. You know, you talk to, I often tell um, my white cisgender straight uh, friends and students, go into spaces where you are not in the dominant group, right? That means you cannot be in the, <laughs> you have to leave university classrooms, right? You have to go into other communities. And they often report, yeah, I did it and it was fine, but I did notice I was the only person who was white or cisgender <laughs> or, you know, male. I'm like, good. This is, that builds your empathy because now you understand that even if people are treating you exactly the way they should be treating you, it feels different. And if you have a sense that there's things that are happening, there's a hidden curriculum you can't access, it becomes even more exacerbated, right? And so, you know, those sort of moments of feeling human and building empathy is super important. I just hope that people kind of think of that as a challenge. And even those of us who hold minoritized identities, we can't fall into that trap of thinking. We know what it's like because we have a marginalized or oppressed identity. We have, you know, I have to constantly check myself because I'm not a woman. I'm not a queer person. I'm not a person who uh, speaks English as a second language. So I have to remember that those are experiences that I have to be cognizant of because I don't live those day by day. I'm laughing because I'm, I'm connecting what you're saying now to what you said earlier about when Dr. Tatum mentioned that sometimes the choir needs to be reminded right and so i've been doing these classes at the ymca recently 
That's what I'm like, I gotta mix it up. I can't just play basketball all the time. It's not great for my body. <laughs> and my body Them joints, stuff. brother. Them joints, bro. Yo, nah, my back, bro. So <laughs> I'll go into these classes and it's all women. Right. It's all women. Um, some of them are older, some of them are middle aged, but it's all women. And I'll come in and you know, they're kinda like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> It's also great, right, for your humility because then you often realize somebody who doesn't let me know what they're doing, they can do it, and you can't. Bro, it gets better, right? So I come in and I'm like, yo, I'm about to body this class. I'm about, to, I'm about to show them what it is. And they'll be like a Zumba class, right? And they're just, they're, they're murdered. They're just getting it all in with the Zumba. And I'm like, oh, I'm like two steps off. And I'm like, yo, what is going on? Everybody's in sync but me. You know, even the old lady that has to modify the moves, she's kind she's of on killing top it. of it. She's you know, killing it. I'm looking at a couple of ladies in front of me trying to, I'm like, I, right. you know, like step to the left, step to the right, one, two, two, ah. <laughs> Listen, bro, humbling, humbling experience. Exactly. You know, <laughs> being the only male, you know, and big black dude, and <laughs> your white women mainly in the Zumba class, but uh, they you know, know they—they—they've been outperforming me. I can't front. They've been outperforming me in Zumba. Yeah, and you know, and you, it's you very learn, humbling. And you learn about I'm competitive too. Right, right. You learn about this sort of process of cooperative, you know, learning. Like, you know, they're gonna help you out a little bit, and maybe the competition piece goes out a little bit more. But that's a great—that's a great piece of this whole thing. Like, we can never get to the point where we feel we've—and that's one thing I will say that has concerned me in a lot of the movements I'm seeing is when people get to a certain level, we're like, you know, I'm just so, I'm so far ahead of y'all. You know, I know what's going on. You need to, you know, you get yourself together. And I'm like, you know, that's to me, that lack of cultural humility is a trap, right? Then you become hegemonic and you become a person who's able to oppress people because you are assuming that you've got this sort of level of knowledge. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, bro, you know, from what work we do, every time I go into space with you, and Katie and Lamia, uh, I would learn something from you all talking, right? I would learn something from the people asking questions. I would have to re-examine some things I thought previously, right? And if I walk in and like, well, I'm the expert here, I'm Dr. Reddick and, you know, book and article, you, you, you miss out on so much. And it doesn't mean you can't have expertise and you can't challenge people, but it does mean at some point, nobody likes to be called out. People don't mind being called in, Yo, let me talk to you for a minute. Yeah, what you were saying earlier, I, did I understand that correctly? Did I get what you were saying? Because this is how I see it, right? And then sometimes you're like, okay, I got to check what I think because I misinterpreted what you said. But I find so much of our conversation is sort of on that hair trigger kind of thing where it's like, yo, you said something that I'm just not going to hear it. And it doesn't mean that you don't try to work and become better at that, but it also means you take time to hear what people have to say. And Brother, this comes from me doing this work for a long time. One of the things I did in this first chapter was like my own scholarly personal narrative. I realized I've been doing this work since I was like 19 years old in some format, you know, as a university ambassador or whatever, doing multicultural and diversity education work. So I've been doing it for like 30 years. So this is where I'm at 30 years into the game. And, you know, if you're new to the game, it's, it might be very frustrating. You might want to tell people like, yo, Kill that noise. Stop doing that. You're doing it wrong. That's when the restorative piece and the, the comes in and the sustainable piece comes in. You do that, that's going to actually detract from your ability to be effective in spaces. And listen, we, we all, we need space for everybody. We need the rabble rousers. We need the people who are really smooth. We need everybody in the space. But we also need humility in the work that we're right. doing. And, and the one thing I will say, if you do diversity, equity, inclusion work, you will be humbled. You don't get to walk around feeling, I know what I'm doing all the time. You you walk and do with something. You thought you crushed it. And somebody said, like, yeah, you misgendered people. Or, yeah, you didn't think about this accommodation. You didn't consider those kinds of things. And instead of being defensive, how can I incorporate those kinds of things? Mm -hmm. and, and, and Choose hear humility. That. Right. Choose humility because you do have a choice there, right? That's right. You can choose humility or, or you could choose to be proud. Mm-hmm. We gotta, you know, evolve in our empathy, and so try the Zumba class, people. <laughs> the Zumba class of equity. 
<laughs> Get into it. So as a black man that leads and educates about equity at a predominantly white university, what are ways that you engage in self-care? Yeah, well, as I was telling you earlier, that was a subject of a study we did. Um, and, and we really had to think about that. So I, I will tell you something, you know this right now, um, the fam, you know, I have three people at this house who are inside there eating right now. Um, you know, um, sometimes they are interested in my, you know, struggles and my, my thought processes. And sometimes they want to go to the park and they want to play basketball. They want to watch TV, you know, or we want to go for a bike ride. So that's been really grounding me. And, you know, and sometimes I think it's a little unfair to say that you are responsible for my work-life balance. But I mean, uh, having, you know, a preteen and a teenage uh, child will definitely do that. You know, <laughs> you, you will learn the importance of sort of balancing your life out. And, you know, I, I kind of say to myself, sometimes I need to be responsible for balancing myself and not putting on their shoulders. But, you know, when it's a Saturday and we want to go ride a bike, people aren't really want to feel me my, you know, how I'm in some kind of way about my mind, right? Uh, you know, um, but also I just, I think for me, it's being in community with people. It's being on this zoom with you. I mean, Instagram live, sorry, uh, with you. And it's, you know, doing the work with people like Robin, I was talking about earlier, that makes me know there are people across the world doing the same work I'm doing. And if I ever feel like I'm down or ever feel like I'm not being effective, I can reach out to them. They can say like, yeah, you know, try this or actually rich that is working. And the thing about our work, Rob, and you know, this is like, we plant seeds, right? And so right. sometimes we've been in a session, you're talking to somebody, you're saying something, and you could see somebody just like, you know, and you're like, are you okay? And they're like, I, I just got it. You know, I, it, it just broke through to me. And you realize it's not because you're brilliant. It's because this is the fifth, sixth, seventh, 25th time they've heard that message. And now they're like, okay, right. now you put it together in a way that I get it. Cause I've been hearing this before and first I resisted right. it. Heard it from the media, I heard it from Katie, heard it from yeah. now you hear it from Rich. Like, okay, now I got it. Or at least I'm on the pathway to getting it. And, and that's what I always tell people. I was like, you know, if you walk into a space and you do some work and you were like, wow, it didn't have any effect on anything. I've had people come up to me years later. I had a, I had a classmate of mine at the University of Texas who came to me and said, remember that time that we were in, working in the uh, front desk during orientation, and you told me X, Y, and Z? I'm like, nah. <laughs> He's like, well, when you did that, I started doing these other things, and now I'm doing this work. Now, obviously, that's, that's, that's hugely flattering, but I also realized other things happened in his life. But it is amazing how one action or one intervention or one moment can kind of steer people in certain directions, and we're all part of that work. And if we are, if you're one of the, Think about it. If we let's go find somebody who's, you know, who's operating from a racist framework, and this person turns around one day and says, "I want to be anti-racist. I'm going to do that work." Think about the number of people from that person's earliest times to the present day who chipped away at those issues mm. and got them to think a certain way. We'll never know each other. We'll never have a chance to sort of, you know, well, you remember old Bob there? You know, back in the day, he was like. Sometimes we will, but a lot of times we don't. But if we do, it's a great experience just to think about how we might have that impact on somebody. And then secondly, the impact on us. I hear people say things to me when they're defensive or angry or, or you know, shutting me out. And I have to go think about that. And I'm like, man, am I, am I really doing those kinds of things? Or is that person responding negatively because they are actually getting to the core? Like you're actually hitting them someplace, you know? The worst thing is like, oh, I got to squabble this because I'm just feeling some kind of way. Because now you realize what I was thinking was not the way I want to think. So, I mean, to me, it's about those things. And, you know, I still got my bass guitar over there. You know, I'll put the bass guitar in and do some, you know, some of my work, the Stanley Clark work on, on the bass and, and feel a little bit better about myself. But, you know, I, I turned 50 this year and that's one of, it's a blessing because I think if I had told myself at the age of 25 or I don't know, man, being 50 is going to be kind of lit. I'd be like, nah, you're going to be old and, you know, needing bifocals, which I do wear. Um, but I said, you know. We're not judging you, Rich. Well, you know, I mean, you mentioned basketball. I'm like, yeah, man, those joints, bro. You got to watch out, man. So, you know, heck, I felt a ladder the other day. I felt a ladder the other day. I'm like, okay, this is definitely an old man move. 
But um, I, I was really uh, sort of um, glad to think about the fact that I feel really blessed that I'm able to do the work I do. I've, I've always had interesting work and enjoyed the work. Thanks, Ren. It is right. Like, it's a big deal. I'm just like, I'm still here, you know. The big still, fish, still, that's right. Still swinging. Still big swinging. Still, still swinging. <laughs> Fritz, so what's the message of encouragement you want to offer to, to those who are listening? Yeah, well, I want to thank everybody, first of all, for being here. I know, you know, different time zones, people got things to do. Appreciate it. Uh, means a lot that you took the time to, to hang out. But I, I would just say, like, look, 2020, 2021, and so far 2022. I mean, we're talking about unprecedented times. And in fact, when I talk to old heads, they say 68 felt like this. They, they can tell me, you know, historical mm -hmm. moments we learn about in history books that this moment is like this. To not diminish the fact that this is a incredibly challenging time. Nobody should feel any kind of way about saying, I need time to reflect. I need time to de compress, I need time away, right? Claim that for yourself because you need to do that because here's the problem. I keep on hearing people talking about things like getting back to normal. I'm like, was normal really something we wanted to be to begin with? Was normal working for all of us? I don't think it was. But if we've learned anything, it's like the cascading effects of racial inequity, of, of police violence, of a pandemic, are not hitting us all equally. And so we should make sure we are articulating that to people. And even if we're doing okay ourselves, right? To say, I know some folks in our space are not doing well. What are we doing to support them? And let's not offer this idea that, oh, well, you know, once we uh, get through, once we get through the first couple of, uh, you know, months, we'll be back to normal. Some people are never gonna be quote unquote normal. Right. And, and we need to remember, it's not going to be something that's going to go away after, you know, we got the vaccines to everybody, we need to get them. Um, the losses, I mean, I heard something amazing, like, I think one out of 16 black kids in schools have lost a family member because right. of the pandemic. Wow. I mean, mind blown stat. That's right. If you teach kids of color, your kids have been impacted by this. And it might not be immediate but it might be uh, somebody in the, uh, an auntie an mm -hmm. uncle a grandparent or somebody in the community right so let's not fall into the trap of saying oh we're all better now let's bounce back let's be reflective and remember what this means to um to be in a moment where we should be taking the time to reflect on what does equity really look like and what can we do in, individually and institutionally because we all belong to institutions. We run schools, we run universities, we run nonprofits, or we have leadership opportunities in those spaces. What are we doing to make sure the equity issues are not just something that we're like, let's be more equitable. No, what can I actually do? What can I change? What can I advocate for? Hmm. Evolve your empathy. Exactly. You got it, brother. So, Rich, as we wrap up, <clears throat> Just because I'm sure there's a lot of folks who are going to want to hear more from you, uh, all the gems that you gave us tonight, and uh, certainly your book that comes out in the spring of 2023, Restorative Resistance in Higher Education, Leading in an Era of Racial Awakening and Reckoning. Spring of 2023, people. You heard it here first. Where can the people follow you? So I'm just learning this Instagram game. So at the Chronicles of Reddick is, 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 is my Instagram tag. If you are here, I guess you know that. Um, but I'm usually on Twitter at Dr. Rich Reddick. Um, and, you know, that's usually what I, you know, I'm usually in that space. And so, you know, tweet at me or, you know, let me know what's going on or, you know, let me know what you're working on. Because I always think, again, um, if you're doing equity work, if you're working in this, in this, in this vibe, uh, we're all on the same team, you know. Um, so, you know, and I always like to hear what people are working on. So you got something dope that you're doing, you know, share it with me too, so I can get it out there. And, you know, shout out to Dr. Tatum for, uh, giving me the, uh, line about the choir, because I've been using that for years. That's right. Hey, Rich, man, I want to thank you again for being here, for taking your time, for sharing so much with us. The 
Of everything, everything. Certainly the stuff related to your book coming out in the spring of 2023. And I'm gonna state the title again, people, because we're gonna make this sink in. Restorative <laughs> resistance in higher education, leading in an era of racial awakening and reckoning. But also the stuff that you dug into as it relates to the committee that you chaired, the, the Eyes of Texas History Committee at UT Austin, uh, and the piece about self-care, because you know we we gotta we gotta think about that, right? We gotta make sure that we're intentionally talking about that, uh, but also acting on things that are gonna help us to be able to sustain our efforts, especially those of us in this DEI space. Um, you know, true practitioners. But as Rich stated earlier, you don't have to be a DEI practitioner to to be engaged in this work. We should all be engaged because this really is about all of us and us as a society being able to knock down the walls of division so that we can progress together. So Rich, man, it's been my pleasure. You know, I got a lot of love for you, for your family. So greetings to them. Hope to reconnect with you in person in the future and certainly have you back on this platform or classroom. Oh, facts, facts. And, you know, Rob, you, Nana, I, I miss you guys. And the little ones, man, you got a whole crew now, which is amazing to me. Uh, but Bro, trust me, didn't plan it this way. <laughs> Keeping it real. I love it. But, you know, um, just so much respect for what you guys are doing. Um, this is such important work. And uh, I just really appreciate having the time to just vibe with you and just, you know, be in a cipher because it's great. I mean, I, I feel lifted. This is the kind of stuff you need to start the year with. So this is great. Looking forward to the next time, man. We're going to definitely chop up some more. Thank you. Peace and blessings, my brother. Peace. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>